We're returning to Exodus chapter 4, and we've slowed our pace down a bit. And I've done it for a couple of reasons. One is our, uh, our attendance, including the pastors, is intermittent in the, in the summer. And I didn't want to skip whole uh, passages, whole sections of Exodus together. I want us, as many as possible for us all to study it together. And then I also wanted to, I want to slow down a bit and improve our skills of observation. Because maybe some of you, like me, grew up in, in contexts where the Old Testament wasn't studied uh, as intentionally. In the context I grew up in, the Old Testament was dismissed as something that was already been fulfilled, and all you need now is the New Testament. And uh, it was a great revelation to me to see how enriching the Old Testament is in its unveiling of Christ, that Christ was present and working in the Old Testament, and that by going back and looking how the Old Testament prepared the Old Testament people of God for the coming of Christ, you, you get even new, even greater insights into the wonderful saving work of Christ. So we're improving our observation skills by slowing down and, and asking, why did God use Moses as he did in, the, in uh, this book? And we're told in the New Testament that he was an anticipation of Christ, that he was looking toward Christ. When we see the work of mediation in Moses, we're seeing the work of Christ. When we see him interceding for the people of God, when we see God mentioned as being with his people, uh, when we see living water provided from rocks, we know that we are looking at God intentionally preparing his people for the work of Christ as well as saving them even then by putting their faith in the coming Christ who would be revealed in Jesus. So today we look at Moses again. And here in verses 27 and following, specifically verses 27 and 28, we're observing that Aaron was given to Moses as a mouthpiece. And, and God says that he speaks his word to Moses and Aaron will speak that word in turn. And we're asking, we ask these three simple questions when we study any text of Scripture. We ask, first of all, what does the Scripture mean? What does the text mean? What do the words mean? How do the sentences fit together? What is the grammar? What is the historical context? And then we ask, how does this point to Christ? How is it fulfilled in Christ? And the third question we ask is, how does it apply to me? Now, those three questions have to be asked of every passage of Scripture. If you miss any one of those questions, you have an inadequate study. If you, if you just say, what does it mean and how does it apply to me, you end up with moralism. You just end up with life lessons without the empowerment and the motivation of Christ. If you just say, let's look at Jesus in the text, you don't understand that God has very intentionally through history been revealing Christ. And if you leave off application, then you fail to be salt and light in the world. We ask all three of those questions. And those are the questions we're asking of this text this morning. Let's begin reading verses 27 through, follow, uh, through uh, the end of the chapter in chapter 4 of Exodus. <clears throat> the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. 
Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Please open our eyes, O Lord, by means of the Holy Spirit, that we can understand what the text means, that we can see how Christ fulfills it, and that we can see what our response to grace must be. Enable us, we pray. Enable those who have never embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. Would this be the day of their salvation and reconciliation to a loving Father? In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. Years ago, I read in a book by Richard Seltzer a story he told about one of his surgeries. He wrote a a devotional book of of sorts about his experiences as a surgeon called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. He said he had a case on one occasion which a woman had a very serious tumor in her cheek and he had to remove it ever so delicately. But in the process, despite his best efforts, he had to sever a nerve that controlled her lips on one side. And uh, severing that nerve meant that she permanently would not be able to smile with that half of her face. It would, it would droop for the rest of her life. He went into the, into the hospital room and and while he had very good news to, to give her about the removal of the tumor, he had to explain to her that he, he had to cut that nerve to save her life and that her mouth would permanently droop to the side. She asked him again, will it be, will it be permanent? Yes, I'm, I'm afraid it will be. There was somebody else sitting with her. He didn't know who he was, but... He noticed his tenderness toward this young woman. And this is how Seltzer goes on to tell the rest of the story. He says uh, that while he, after he gave the news, all at once, he says, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. He says, the man does, I like it. I think it's kind of cute. He contorted his own face to kiss his wife whom he loved. It's a picture of the gospel, is it not? That in order for God to communicate the love of the gospel to us, the good news that we as sinners, as broken people can be reconciled to a holy God, he had to become flesh and dwell among us. He had to contort himself. He had to accommodate himself to who we were. He had to become one of us. He had to speak our 
language and he continues to speak our language so that he can gather those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He could not have been comfortable for Jesus. To, for, for him to leave the comforts of, of his environment in heaven, it could not have been comfort, comfortable for Jesus to accommodate himself to worship with us as he continually does. Our worship in no way compares to that of heaven. And yet he says he continues to sing in our midst. It could not have been comfortable. It wasn't, in fact, because it says he made himself nothing, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant for us. He contorted himself, adapted himself without compromising the gospel. He adapted himself in order to speak the gospel to us. And it's what Moses anticipates. It's what Moses and Jesus and the apostles and the early believers, it's what throughout history believers have taught us, it is what we are also called to do, to deliver the gospel of hope, the word of hope. The word become flesh, just as it became flesh in Jesus to us, it must become flesh in us and delivered practically. I want you to notice how it comes out in this, this text where Moses is described as the one who will be the mediator, the intercessor, the one who will deliver his people from, or the agent of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. It is, first of all, a word of hope entrusted to Moses, a word of hope. Moses has to deliver a word of hope to people who are in bondage. But to do so, he has to go into their bondage with them. He has to go into their culture. He has to learn their culture. He has to learn the culture of the Egyptians and learn the culture of the Jews as well. It wasn't comfortable for Moses. Moses, in a way, had been delivered from, from Egypt. He, he, he didn't leave on his own will. He was run out of Egypt. He was running for fear of his life, but he had to be sure. He had to be relieved once he got out of Egypt that he was no longer there in a kind of a bondage as well. But God said, I want you to go back there. I want you to go back there into that place where your people are in bondage. I want you to go to be with them. And I want you to speak the word that Pharaoh can understand in the Egyptian and in the way in the Egyptian language and in the customs you've learned. And I also want you to speak to the Jews and the in the customs and in the language you've learned of them too. And by chapter six, we'll see that both reject him. That the Israelites say, we want you to leave. Things, were, things are bad before you got here, but now they're even worse after you've arrived. And he's also erect, rejected by the, by, the, by the Egyptians. And yet God gives him a message and he faithfully responds to it. He goes into the, into the heart of their bondage to speak the word of deliverance. Now, what kind of bondage was it? Well, we've looked at that. We spent some time on that in the early chapters of of Exodus, we, we spent some time unpacking that they were under financial bondage. They were under they were an economic bondage. They were under a spiritual bondage. They were under, they were under a political bondage. They were under a bondage to their own sin. And, 
And God says that he cannot allow his people to go forward in that kind of captivity. These people made in his image were enslaved and God could not tolerate that any longer. And so he sends Moses to relieve them of their human oppression because he loved them as human beings. Ultimately, he was presenting a picture of the cosmic redemption that all of us would experience. But Moses became a deliverer from that human captivity. And what was the message that Moses was sent with? Let my people go. Moses didn't go saying, I do hope you'll let my people go. He doesn't knock on Pharaoh's door and say, would you please allow me to enter into your culture and to beg you to let our people go? He goes under the divine commission by God and he commands him, let my people go. Any parallel there for us? The parallel for us is that we are the servants of Christ, the one Moses anticipated. We are mouthpieces like Aaron. And whatever God has said to Christ, we are to say to those around us. And that includes declaring that God is the one who delivers from all oppression. That God is the one who cares for those made in his image. And where we find financial captivity, where we find human beings being objectified, where we find human beings being trafficked, where we find uh, uh, financial oppression, where we find spiritual oppression, we are to step into those situations and speak the word of hope. You say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix poverty. I don't know how to fix racial uh, uh, divides. I don't know how to to fix whole areas that are in turmoil. I don't know how to do that. No, you're not called to, to have the resources on your own. You are to step into the situation with the word of hope, which is the gospel, and watch Christ work. It's what Christians have always done. They've just stepped into the situation like someone calling down airstrikes on enemy territory. We step into it and we say, I don't know what to do here, but you say the Holy Spirit dwells in me. You say the Holy Spirit runs a fast path between earth and heaven, bringing the resources of the Lord Christ to bear on this earth. You answer, you promise you'll answer the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I step into this situation, not having all the answers, but knowing the one who brings hope. I step into this situation knowing the one who said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and preach the gospel in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We prayed this morning for our brother Marin Thomas in our, with our partner church in Fraser, Innovation Church. We do a lot of things with that church. We, we are brothers and sisters in partnership with that church. I called Marin the other day, and we lamented together the entire broken situation that stretches from Hernando to Fraser, the entire broken situation throughout the community. We lamented it together. We had no answers for it other than we could say together, it is only the hope of the gospel. And what did Marin do? He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to, to, to cure that situation, that systemically broken situation. But what he did do was show up and he said, let's pray. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's talk about the hope that Jesus brings. And, they've, they, and, and 
a greater peace has come, and they've tapped him, the family, asked him to do the, the funeral service on Saturday. We pray it's the beginning of even greater things. So that's what we are called to do. To step into our Egypts and even face formidable foes like Pharaoh and say, I have no resources on my own against you, but I do know King Jesus who has a word of hope. The second thing you see in this passage or alluded to in this passage, one we've noticed already, is a word of peace. We need peace in this spiritually dangerous world because we are not just dealing with human enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities and powers. That was no less true than this cap- in this captivity of Israel. I shared this passage with you before. It's in Numbers, just one book, uh, just a couple of books over. You don't have to turn there. Numbers chapter 33. It's a, it's a, it's a line that could almost escape our notice when God is describing the exodus from Israel. And he says in in Numbers 33, 3, they set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month on the day after Passover. The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. Listen to this. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. The text tells us, as one old preacher has put it, the devil was in Egypt. Satan was behind Pharaoh. The captivity that the children of Israel uh, were in, it was a spiritual captivity. It was spiritually empowered There are spiritual powers behind these forces that keep us disunified or seek to stir up disunity. You can even fall prey to it as a Christian. There are spiritual forces in this city at work keeping people in bondage. And we go into that darkness not alone, but knowing that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Moses was no match for Pharaoh alone, much less a Pharaoh empowered by Satan himself. And yet when he went with the word of God, let my people go, when he just repeated what God said, God brought peace to his people. He could have brought peace to Pharaoh too had he repented, but he brought peace to his people by bringing them out. This is, this is an interesting age that we are in. In some ways, I find it a very encouraging age in which people readily admit that there are spiritual powers around us. I found evangelism much more challenging in the days when Everything, every, people began with a secular perspective. When people began with the idea that everything has a material explanation and you had to prove, first of all, that there was a reality beyond that which is seen and objectified. But now there is a greater consensus that people at least admit that there are spiritual realities. Just in the last month, I've had two evangelistic conversations 
where someone has said openly to me, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. And I'm open to, and I'm very open to spiritual conversation. And they were. And we had a, an opportunity to, to, to show that the reason that the, they had that spiritual inclination is because they were made in the image of God. And just like Romans 1 says in Romans 2, that we know that there is a God and a creator with whom we have to do, and we are suppressing that which we know to be true. We are suppressing the truth. We can start with that assumption that the majority of people admit that there is a spiritual reality. And so when we are talking with someone about the gospel and we are addressing needs to which the gospel must be applied, we must realize that we are in a spiritual battle and need spiritual empowerment. And at the same time, and never lose, lose sight of the fact that we have weapons that are more divinely powerful than those that are drawn up against us. Therefore, we can wade into any conversation and any topic and we can say, we have good news for that. I read not long ago from a scholar named John Seal, an article he wrote, The New Copernican Revolution, when he's describing this new uh, sensitivity uh, in our culture to spiritual realities. He said, we must make sure that as Christians, we are answering the questions that people are actually asking. Because in Jesus, we do have the answer. Here's how he puts it. Here are the questions. Here are the questions people are asking according to surveys. How, how do I relate to my LGBTQ friends? Or how do they date without acting on the assumptions of the hookup scene? Or how do they deal with the aspirations of the good life portrayed in Hollywood films and television advertising? How do they avoid the soft narcissism of the self-esteem, selfie-saturated culture? How do they deal with their parents' politics, which leave them cold? How do they deal with police abuse? How do they deal with the high-profile hypocrisy of Christian leaders on Ashley Madison and the longing for romance on The Bachelor or Bachelorette? The gnawing sense of irrelevance of the church and Christian belief to the world they are navigating on a daily basis is like an unhealed wound in their souls. The outcome of the encounter of the gospel with our neo-pagan culture will be decided by the strength of our Christology. Let me put it in plain language. Those who will be one to Christ will be one to the Jesus of Scripture. The one who is eager to answer their questions and to bring peace and hope to their brokenness. We have that word of peace. Final thing I want you to see from this passage is that we have a word of love. Now, admittedly, you don't see it so clearly in Moses. Moses, we can infer, went to, to Egypt because he was eager to see Pharaoh's firstborn son killed. We don't always see Moses uh, loving his people. Although we can feel some sympathy with Moses, it's hard to love people when they're throwing rocks at you. But Moses sometimes lost his temper with his people. Moses wasn't always motivated by fear, by love. 
sometimes motivated by fear or anger. Where do we see love then? We see it in the God of redemption. We see it in the God who said, I cannot tolerate my people in slavery any longer. I will send Moses to them. I will overcome his stubbornness. I will push him into Egypt. I'll give him a mouthpiece. And I'll beat straight blows out of Egypt and across a desert with a very crooked stick. But I will get my people into the promised land because I love them. And I love them so much that nobody is going to take them. Not, nobody is going to interrupt my program of rescuing them in Jesus Christ. No one is going to stop the coming of Christ. No one is going to prevent him from going to the cross, and no one is going to prevent him from coming out of the grave. We see love in this passage from God himself. And we see love in this passage by Moses' contrast to Christ, the one to whom he's pointing, who loved us and gave himself for us. The one who obeyed his father wasn't like Moses who said, send somebody else. But when God said, son, we need to rescue these people, he said, I delight to do your will, oh my God. I've spoken to them every word you have given to me. And I'll send them into the world to say the same thing. We have that privilege. We have that privilege of imitating the love, the humble love of Jesus Christ, the one who contorted himself, the one who limited himself, the one who adapted himself, the one who accommodated himself, the one whom John Calvin said spoke and continues to speak baby talk to us so that we will understand the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have that opportunity in this place, in Memphis, in this church. We celebrate it, don't we, in World Missions Conferences when our missionaries come back to us and say, I learned their language. I adapted our worship service. I contextualized the gospel without compromising the gospel so that I could reach them. And we are missionaries too. And so we're called to adapt our ministries. We're called even to accommodate our worship for our neighbors so that they might find their place and their home in this place. Remember what the father did in the parable? The father said, I have, I have a wedding banquet. I want my friends to come. He sent out the invitations and the proper people didn't come. And so he said, I want my house to be full. So go into the highways and byways and bring them in so that my house will be full. The reason we do evangelism the reason we humble ourselves, the reason we adjust our own tastes and our own comforts is because we love the Father who wants his house full. And because we want to realize here the kingdom of God, the coming complexion of heaven. There is a cemetery in the heart of London that I visited called Bun Hill Fields. Bunhill Fields is not the most beautiful thing in the world to look at. They just occasionally cut down the weeds. The gates and the fencing are somewhat rusty. The graves are not really well marked. 
It's because it has, it was for 200 years, a non-conformist cemetery. It means that those people who did not conform to the traditions of the Church of England, well, that was a kind of, their kind of punishment. If you're not going to conform to us, if you're not going to conform to our traditions, then we're going to punish you by putting you in a tacky cemetery. But if you conform, well, we'll keep the grass mowed. We'll make sure the headstone's well-preserved. Now, there are Christians in that graveyard, the Church of England graveyard, for sure, there are. But I remember a story one of my professors told once about a, an English friend of mine who took him to see Bunhill Fields for the first time, and he went there after touring a Church of England graveyard. And he, he stood there and he said, now, there is the grave of Isaac Watts, and there is the grave of John Bunyan. There's the grave of William Defoe and John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and William Blake and George Fox. There are those graves of the people you consider, and we would too, consider as heroes of the faith. Ones who said, we have a calling to take the gospel into all the world, into other cultures, and we're going to adapt the language to mean something, to win people to Christ, even if it means being shunned by the traditionalists of the church, we're going to do it. And my English friend said of my professor, if my professor stood there and rotated and thought about all the people surrounding 120,000 so-called nonconformists, he said, imagine this place on the day of resurrection. These people who were told, you don't fit, you didn't conform. Jesus may say to the others, enjoy your well-kept grave. But to these I say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the dignified glorious task we have. And I'm ever so grateful for a church of thousands committed to it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this one life you have given us ever so short by which we might imitate the humble call of Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to grasp but made himself nothing. Oh, forgive us, Lord, for considering ourselves to be something. May we instead make ourselves nothing that we might be those humble mouthpieces by which we might point to the world. And would you continue to craft us into a church that says to the world, this is the power, the reconciling, unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen.